Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating spirits world. And I'm going to start out by saying thank you, because if you guys are listening to this, that means you looked at the episode, saw the length of time I put into this one, and decided to dive in and commit anyways. So I thank you for that. It's it's a long one, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's maybe the the purest form of me uh just talking that you guys will get uh, or at least that you've gotten so far and you know last week last week the podcast turned 21 legal to drink at least in terms of episodes but this week i turn 50 that's just a mind blowing sort of milestone for me uh yeah, it still hasn't really set in that I'm I'm 50, but here I am, and, and here we go. Uh, you know, not a lot of drinking on this episode, although, you know, at the time I recorded a lot of it was after recording the Whiskey Wednesday video and all that for Watch You Some Wine and Spirits, so I quite honestly had a couple in me when I got started. But, you know, we only drink a couple of whiskeys, and I guess in this intro, I'll throw you in a bonus. If you guys saw my Instagram post from yesterday, which was actually my birthday, June 30th, uh, you saw the picture that I put up. I am right now, as of as I'm recording this, drinking the Barrel Armida, uh, which is bourbon finished in rum barrels and pear brandy barrels and Sicilian Amaro barrels. So I'll give you a quick little 30-second review on this. You know, on the nose, the, the pear jumps right out at you. It kind of reminds me of the smell of St. George Pear Eau de Vie. I get some of that burnt sugar and molasses from the rum. Quite honestly, I don't get a ton from the Amaro, uh, but I'm assuming it may be something like a Naverna or a Montenegro or, uh, you know, uh, a softer Amaro like that. So I'm not sure what kind of flavors that would add. Taste-wise, so good. You know, you guys know that if I see it on the label, I want to taste it in the glass. All those flavors are there. I do get a little bit of like those Amaro kind of cola, sort of root herbal flavors. Some of that burnt sugar, a little toasted coconut, and definitely that pear. That barrel Armida is right up there with the barrel Dovetail, hand in hand. Maybe two of the best whiskeys I'm going to taste this year. And a special shout out to my friend, my brother, Corey Kilcoin, um, who is now working for the big boys, you know, with one of the big liquor distributors. Uh, but I, I appreciate the fact, Corey, that you thought that highly of me. Uh, to, to get me this for my birthday. I, I can't say enough how much I appreciate it. And that makes this whiskey even more special. So on this episode, it's basically me just kind of rambling and reflecting on things I've seen in the bar business, in the, the retail business over the last 30 years of styles and trends, things we used to drink, ways we used to drink and and just sort of my observations kind of rambling and going off the rails. Along the way, I do taste Old Forester 2020 birthday bourbon. And I taste, you know, a gift from the most important person in my life, um, which is the Highland Park 15-year Viking Heart. Also, a little new format this week. I'm starting off with sort of some, 
spiritual news and notes uh, and, and some thoughts on what's going on in the spirits world, as well as some of the other things that I uh, enjoy spiritually as well. So I hope you guys kind of like the new format. Uh, I admit in the body of it that I kind of stole it a little bit from uh, Fred Minix beneath the char, sort of a little commentary before we get into the episode. I don't know. Let me know what you think. And you know how you let me know what you think? Well, first of all, you go to the podcast page, you click that follow button, you give it a five-star rating, and then share it out on your social media and let your friends know who are into the same kind of stuff that we're into, that there's a podcast out there that they've got to listen to. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, where I'm constantly posting things that I'm drinking, things that I'm listening to, you know, talking about shows that I'm watching, movies that I'm watching, books that I'm reading, everything. Uh, and that's where you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast. Um, and then for anything else, as always, you know, if you've got a sample that you're curious for me to try and you want my opinion on, if there's something I have tasted here, you know, like this barrel Armida, I'm more than willing to share samples with you guys. If you're over 21, you live close by and I've got extra, I will get it to you. Um, I'm going to have some smoke wagon uncut unfiltered next week. And if anybody hasn't tried that, uh, I know I talked to my good friend Leo and his son Paul uh, today and they hadn't had it. So I look forward to pouring off samples and sharing it with those guys next week when my bottle gets here. Uh, if you guys want to come hang out in the studio, let's geek out about culture stuff, you know, books, movies, music, uh, whatever. And we'll drink some cool spirits. For all of that, you can reach me at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. All right, I'm going to let you get into the episode because it's already long enough. Thank you as always, guys. I'm humbled that you're on this journey with me. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. All right, so my God, can you guys believe that it is July first already it's absolutely amazing where has this year gone it seems like it is just flying by but also i'm getting older i just had a birthday yesterday i turned well i yeah i turned 50 um and maybe as we get older the years just seem to go by uh really really fast uh it seems like a steely dan reference there somewhere um Thank you for being back here, uh, Spirits Guide Podcast. I'm trying to sort of restructure and reformulate the podcast, so I'm, I'm playing around with this this format this week, uh, and hopefully this is sort of how it will go uh, going forward in in the weeks to come. And and it's it's me starting off with you know the spiritual side of things and what's going on in the spirits industry, some news and notes to report. I'm not going to lie, I kind of stole this concept a little bit from the Bourbon Pursuit podcast uh, in Fred Minnick's Beneath the Char, but I don't feel like I'm as pretentious as, as Fred Minnick is, nor am I in the same league as Fred Minnick, so I'm, I'm not comparing, just admitting fully that I kind of stole this this concept. But also, it's you know, it's a concept that, you know, I have access to certain information, uh, and my job is to kind of look around and, and get this information and I want to be able to share it with you guys and, and kind of let you guys in on, on some of the stuff that I know, because 
it's funny every week when I, I work and I'm calling my sales reps and going like, Hey, is this in? And they go like, how do you know that? And I go, that's, you know, what I spend a lot of my time doing, and, you know, and at work, there's a, a segment of, of my coworkers who think I just sort of sit in the office and play video games or watch YouTube videos all day. But no, I'm actually doing research on the spirits industry, trying to keep ahead of special releases, you know, things that are coming out because you guys out there are coming to me looking for them. So I want to know that they're coming uh, ahead of even my sales reps so I can get first access to it. It's, you know, it's a, a part of the job I enjoy, but, you know, it, it it's, it's a part of the job that I feel is necessary to be able to serve uh, my customers and my friends even better. Uh, so some news and notes uh, for the past couple weeks as I've been collecting these things. Uh, first off, Evan Williams, which is, you know, a great brand from Heaven Hill. They have announced recently, and I actually knew about this probably two months back, that the Evan Williams single barrel bottling is now, it's now been reduced to a distillery only offering. It's no longer going to be available retail outside of the state of Kentucky. To me, this was always probably the best value single barrel bourbon there was. You know, you're talking under 45, under 40, under 35 dollars for single barrel bourbon that was usually uh, i want to say five and a half six years old i would take and um, i'm ready to start a fight about this but i would take evan williams single barrel over blanton's any day of the week uh, i have done blind tastings with evan williams single barrel four roses single barrel blanton's single barrel uh wild turkey single barrel Blanton's always finishes in last, without a doubt. Uh, but that Evan was always right up there in the top one or two, just because, you know, the value it presents, the availability it always presented, and the flavor profile was always spot on. And there was true barrel variation, which made it fun to buy multiple bottles of Evan Williams single barrel, because no two tasted alike, but they were always great. Um, and you can't say, you know, Blanton's is a wonderful product, whatever, but they always kind of taste the same. So it's amazing how, you know, in this world of store picks and single barrels that we always promote, that every store pick, every single barrel whiskey is unique, yet Blanton's always kind of tastes the same. Uh, not saying it's not good. I'm just saying it should be unique every time, and it's not always that. Evan Williams was always unique. The other thing I loved about it, you know, and I've had this discussion with a lot of you guys, is Henry McKenna, 10-year bottled and bond single barrel, which at times is mind-blowingly fantastic, and at times is hot garbage. Uh, you know, it got named best bourbon in the world a few years back, and everybody went nuts for it. And then there started to be some really bad barrels out there. And, and people kind of shied away from it. People still kind of go after it. You know, I never have a hard time selling it, uh, but people aren't quite as infatuated with it uh, as they were for a very short time. In fact, the last two bottles I've had were just unbelievable. Um, but it shows the true barrel variation that not every barrel is identical. Um, for whatever reason, I can't figure out why Henry McKenna 
or Heaven Hill decides to put out some of those barrels that are subpar at best. But I never had that experience with the Evan Williams single barrel. Uh, it was always great. It was always different. You know, and it will be for me and for, you know, for those of us in the know who knew how great that bottle was, that is going to be a sadly, sadly missed bottle on our shelves. Um, and, you know, next time I'm in Louisville, which is looking like next year, I will definitely be bringing back some bottles of that uh, from the distillery. Uh, next up, Old Forester. Uh, recently, Old Forester and Jackie Zykan announced uh, that they are parting ways. Uh, according to the press release, it all seems, you know, nicey, nicey and in, in, you know, mutual love fest. We all know the truth that those things are never mutual love fests. Uh, it brought up, you know, my friend Peter messaged me as soon as he heard about it. Like, hey, did you hear Jackie, Jackie uh, Zykan's leaving Old Forester? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I read about that. And to me, it initially seemed like uh, Marianne Eves leaving Castle and Key. Like, you know, right before things started to get really great, you kind of bailed out, which usually means there's some sort of internal struggle that neither side really wants. You know, our industry is very, very small. And if you talk shit about somebody, that is going to come back on you tenfold really, really quickly. So... Everybody is going to say nice things. There's not going to be any parting shots. Nobody's burning any bridges because you never know when you have to go back across it. Um, I was a little sad at first because, you know, Jackie is, she's an icon. Uh, she was one of my favorite people to kind of follow, not so much on Instagram because her Instagram is not that interesting, but, you know, just her sort of journey through Old Forester. I always loved listening to podcasts with her on it. Very, very knowledgeable. Um, so initially I was sad and then I had to have this sort of realization. And yeah, I do have some friends on the inside at some of these, uh, you know, big houses. I have friends at Brown Foreman. I have friends at Heaven Hill. I have friends at Jim Beam. So sometimes I get some inside info. And, you know, when I questioned... Uh, my contact at Brown Foreman, who's a pretty high up person, uh, not going to put any names out there, but, you know, I said, what happened? And he said, yeah, well, is what it is. You know, uh, you know, it's for lack of a better term, no big loss for the company. And in fully credits, like Jackie was great for bringing awareness back to the brand. Um, you know, a lot of people were paying attention to old Forrester because of the things that she was doing. Uh, to me, she was a lot more social media savvy than anybody else Old Forester had there. Um, and that includes like the Brown family, uh, the Master Distiller, everybody else. Like she kind of became the face of Old Forester, which is great. But for anybody out there who is feeling like I was feeling at first of like, oh shit, what's going to happen to Old Forester? My friend reminded me of this, like Jackie was great. And she was a great, you know, spokesperson for the brand. And again, was, you know, a big part of bringing the brand sort of back to the prominence that it has. But, you know, I was reminded, you have to remember this. She didn't make the whiskey. Um, she didn't age the whiskey. She wasn't necessarily blending 
birthday bourbon or 86 or 100 or the whiskey row. She was tasting. She was, you know, consulting on cocktail ideas and flavor profiles. And from listening to her, she's got one of the most amazing palettes, you know, that I've ever at least heard discussed. Um, but she wasn't the person making the whiskey. Uh, she did get to have a hand in blending, you know, obviously the 117 series was all her and that was a big deal. But for those of us up here in Massachusetts, that kind of doesn't mean shit to us because none of those bottles were ever made available to us. Um, and in a world full of limited release, allocated whiskeys, uh, I almost get the sense that even that bottling was more of a problem uh, for some of the people who sell Old Forester than it was uh, a blessing because everybody was looking for it. Nobody could get it. It was only available in Kentucky. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a friend of mine bring me by batch number one, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was that signature sort of cherry bomb Old Forester flavor profile. Um, but yeah, if you guys are out there, and you're contemplating like, hmm, maybe I'm going to switch away from Old Forester. Please don't. Um, I love the brand there. You know, everybody I've met from the Old Forester brand and family and the Brown Forum, they're all fantastic people. Um, and the products are just, they're a hidden gem. You know, Old Forester 86, Old Forester 100. I'm almost glad that nobody talks about them because you can still get them on the shelf. They're still readily available. There's been no stock issues during COVID, and they're fantastic. Old Forester Rye is probably one of the best ryes on my shelf, hands down. Uh, and it's, again, it's a sort of grossly overlooked. But for my friends who know whiskey, who get a little bit geeky, who are looking for, you know, things that deliver beyond their price point, they all get that Old Forester Rye over delivers old forest to 86 over delivers old forest to hundred proof over delivers. Those whiskeys are amazing. Then, Hey, let's talk about whiskey row, 1897, uh, 1870, 1910, 1920. I, I mean, 1910 may be sort of my greatest, my favorite whiskey, you know, in that it, it sits in a price point that's above in everyday bottling but it's not so high that you don't invest and buy it again. Love the whole whiskey row series. Oh, by the way, Statesman still going to be great. And birthday bourbon is still going to be just as hard of a unicorn to find uh, come the fall. And I'm sure it is going to be absolutely delicious again. Uh, I am curious to see where Jackie goes next. Uh, I, I was not a fan of sort of the direction that Marianne took after she left Castle and Key. Like, don't begrudge anybody their personal choices or wanting to go do what they're doing. But I'm starting to develop an issue with what I'm starting to term elitist whiskeys. And that are these whiskeys. Uh, and I'll throw some names out there. Old Elk, um, Wilderness Trail, some of the higher end Penelope barrel bottlings. Like some of these things are... They're made to be specialty releases, and they're not, they just haven't been around long enough to be specialty releases to me. Um, and, and I guess I'll, I'll save that sort of rant for another time. But, 
you know, to me, Buffalo Trace has earned the right to be a spe- have specialty releases. Heaven Hill has earned the right. Jim Beam has earned the right. Old Forester has earned the right because they've been around forever. Um, you become a legend by putting in your time. You earned it. You started at the bottom. You scrapped and scraped and earned your way up. And, you know, after 30, 40, 50 years of staying in the game, then you get to become a legend and have specialty releases. I mean, let's look at this in the NBA. With the exception of a couple of of NBA players, you know, LeBron was a beast coming out of high school, and, you know, he was going to be the next great thing, and that was pretty much a can't-miss. How many guys, LeBron, Kobe, um, God, even Michael Jordan wasn't a can't-miss product coming out of college. Like, nobody thought he was going to become what he became. But how many other guys, Guys, uh, Grant Hill turned out to be a good player. Tracy McGrady turned out to be a good player. All these guys who were going to be the next Jordan just never quite got there because you can't anoint something coming right out of the gate. It takes time building a legacy and and putting the work in to become legendary. Uh, And some of these new brands that are coming out just come out of the gate as if they're specialty releases and to me they just haven't earned the right and they're just catering to people who have a lot of money jesus i went on a side rant there um and got way off track and away from probably the best news of all which is old forester i got to meet my friend from from brown foreman who told me my store is at the top of the list we are getting the next barrel of old forester single barrel I'm getting to do a store pick for the first time in five years of Old Forester. It's going to be bottled at Barrel Proof. I get to name it uh, before I even get to taste the samples. It's going to be called Cherries from Heaven because I already know it's Old Forester. It's going to be a cherry bomb of a whiskey. Uh, I don't know anything more, so I don't know what the proof point is going to be. Old Forester doesn't put age statements on their whiskey. When the whiskey's ready, the whiskey's ready. So I don't have any of that information. And again, I haven't even tasted the samples yet, but I know they're coming. It's been confirmed. The label has already been confirmed at Brown Foreman. And hopefully I'm trying to work on an arrangement where my friends from the Horseshoe Barrel Society will get to take part in the sampling and they will have a say in the barrel pick, and that will give them an opportunity uh, to kind of get access. The second group of people that get access to that barrel before it hits the general public are you guys listening to the podcast here. So if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, shit, I want to get my hands on one of those bottles, email me either at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com or rich at wachusettliquors.com. I will put you on the list. I don't know how many bottles are coming. Uh, Usually when it's a barrel proof bottling, there's less because you're not watering down to get to a proof point, which, you know, kind of expands your yield. This is, there's not going to be a lot of bottles. And I know the last time Julio's got a, which is a store in the area, if you guys aren't from Massachusetts, uh, it's one of the better whiskey stores. Maybe a little bit better than mine, although I'll I'll kind of throw down with him over whiskey selection uh, anytime just for the fun and the joy of it. Ryan, if you're out there listening, I would love to do a podcast with you. Um, but he sold his barrel out in an hour. 
if that gives you any indication of how sought after these barrel picks are. So if you're listening, you want to get your hands on one of those bottles of Old Forester single barrel, barrel proof store pick, hand picked by me and my friends in the Horseshoe Barrel Society. Uh, you know it's going to be good. You know it's going to be limited. Again, shoot me an email, rich at what you at liquors or the spirit guide 89 at gmail.com. All right, one more piece of news to kind of throw out there. Uh, and that is, I read this morning that Alan Jackson, country singer, is coming out with a celebrity whiskey. Uh, it's called Silver Belly. And this is just part of a trend that I'm seeing again, playing into that whole elitist coming right out of the gate. Your initial bottling is way too expensive. I don't know what it is with celebrities getting into the whiskey game or even the spirits game. I'll save tequila for another day. I feel like every tequila brand is owned by somebody in Hollywood or a musician, but we're seeing this more and more in whiskey uh, brothers bond, uh, which is the people who own vampire diaries, obviously heaven's door. Bob Dylan is there. Um, yeah, there's just, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that's not available here in Massachusetts. Sweetens Cove, which is Peyton Manning and Andy Roddick and Marianne Eves. Terry Bradshaw has a whiskey. Uh, Charles Woodson has a whiskey. It's just athletes and musicians. Florida Georgia Line has a movie, uh, a whiskey. It, it's just, it's getting, to me, it's getting out of control. It's just money grab for a lot of people. Uh, and, and a lot of these whiskeys, you know, they're hitting 40, 50, 60 dollar price points and they're 25, 30 dollar bottles. They're just not that great. I don't know where it ends, um, but I'm starting to really be suspicious of celebrity backed and celebrity owned whiskeys. What I did like about the Alan Jackson one, at least from what I read, one, it's going to be available nationwide Two, it's bottled at 90 proof. Um, and it's MSRP, MSRP, uh, how much I love that, um, but is around $40. So that makes it more affordable and approachable. And yeah, he says he's hands-on, much like the way I guess Greg Norman was hands-on with his wine too, if anybody believes that crap. Uh, I, I'm sure he got to taste it and was like, oh, that tastes really good. I don't know how much of a whiskey or a bourbon guy he was heading into that. Uh, but just because a star likes his own product and stands to make money on it or stands to get a tax write off on it. Um, I don't know that that makes it good. If I get a sample, uh, I will surely do a review and share it with you guys. But yeah, there seems to be an epidemic of, uh, musicians and athletes and, and fashion people, you know, I, God, we see it in wine. Post Malone has a rosé. Sarah Jessica Parker has wines. Uh, John Bon Jovi has wines. It, it's, you know, uh, hip hop artists with, with cognacs, uh, you know, the Jonas Brothers with tequila and obviously uh, George Clooney with tequila and uh uh, Guy Fieri and Sammy Hagar and just athletes, uh, Ryan Reynolds with Aviation Gin, who I feel like may be the only legit one in the game uh, who actually just tried it, liked it, bought it, uh, and, you know, believes in it. There's just, 
it, it just seems to be where celebrities who I feel like people who are making a ton, not a ton, a fucking ton of like millions and millions of dollars have nowhere to put this money and they're just sinking them into brands of spirits, you know, and then creating some sort of story about how their parents, you know, or their grandfather used to love whiskey. Um, I'm suspect of it all because they're not building distilleries. They're not aging the product themselves. They're buying somebody else's juice, which again, you guys know, I don't have a problem with, but it just seems to be getting out of control with celebrity involvement in spirits. Lastly, and I want to start a fight here. Uh, I want to start an argument. I want you guys to chime in on this. Please email me, thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. Shoot me a comment on Facebook and Instagram as the Spirits Guide. You guys know that I love music. You know, we've done reggae episodes here. I've done hip-hop episodes. I've done blues episodes. I post almost every Sunday vinyl that I'm listening to while drinking Bloody Marys. You guys know I love my music. Well, this weekend I found myself in a conversation uh, with somebody who is fascinated by the Beatles Beach Boys dynamic. And I'm always blown away by this because I don't get the dynamic. Um, and basically like how the, the Beach Boys inspired and pushed the Beatles to do better. And when I thought about it, I was like, it just like I've read that, you know, I've heard it on other music podcasts. People have talked about it, you know, the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds and, you know, uh, Sergeant Peppers and and just sort of the, the back and forth. To me, it just reminds me of like when I was a kid growing up, a, a Red Sox fan, you know, and Red Sox fans would always think like Red Sox Yankees was a big rivalry. And then you talk to Yankees fans, they're like, yeah, we don't give a shit about that. We got like 30 of these World Series things. They've got like two and they haven't won one in like 85 years. Uh, I go back to like Andy Roddick, tennis player. I think he beat Pete Sampras one year for the U.S. Open. And they said, ah, oh, you know, one of the, the people in his press conference was like, you know, how do you what do you think about this rivalry? And he said, I won one. Pete's got like 15 of these things. If I win a couple more, then we can call it a rivalry. I know the Beach Boys are an American icon. People love their music. They've sold a ton of albums. They're not the Beatles, you know? And and I sort of made the argument of like, almost the worst Beatles song is better than the best Beach Boys song. And I, I think, I forget which Beach Boys album I pulled up. And I was like, look, I'm going to make the argument here that the Beach Boys are one dimensional. I get, they make great sounds, great harmonies, but here's an album. That's called, uh, it was the album that's got Surfer Girl on it, which is the opening track, which may be the shittiest opening track of any album. Uh, to me, like that album just sounds like they slowed the tape down or they were all just super high, like, little sir, like speed up the tape. Let's hear it in real time. But there were five songs on that album that all had the word surfer in the title. Like, how fucking one-dimensional can you get um the beatles you know they went from i want to hold your hand and norwegian wood and help and then it gets into the weird stuff of the white album and sergeant peppers and like the evolution of the beatles is all over the place i firmly believe the beatles could never survive in today's music industry because you're not allowed to experiment and be creative and kind of go in all different directions like that nor could you you know 
be using the kind of drugs they were using and have that be socially acceptable either, though you can't argue the the creative influence it had. I'm just saying, like, I don't get how the Beach Boys and the Beatles can get put on the same level. Uh, other than like harmonies, I get the harmonies on, on both bands are fantastic, but man, like the, the Beatles, like, it's not even a question to me. Like I can hear 20 Beach Boys songs in a row and not know that the song changed. Like They just all sound the same to me. Um, whereas the, the Beatles, like Helter Skelter, you know, love, love me do Penny Lane, uh, let it be like I can name you ten songs you wouldn't even know they were the, done by the same band if they hadn't been sort of ingrained into our DNA over the last forty, fifty years or whatever it is. So that's the argument I want to start. That one, there's no competition. The Beatles are far better than the Beach Boys uh, in every regard. Maybe album sales, there's a little bit of closeness, but I don't understand, you know, why the Beatles who were in England, you know, around the, the Stones, the Who, Led Zeppelin, the Yardbirds, you know, you had Clapton and Beck and Page and Stevie Winwood and all these great musicians in there. But what pushed the Beatles was the fucking Beach Boys. I don't buy it. I don't get it. I want somebody to chime in on it. Hell, if you want to come here and have a debate with me, I will pour whatever spirit you want. You can come sit here in the studio with me and we can debate the merits of the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And that being said, I don't even love the Beatles, but I just don't get why. I mean, I know it was a thing and I know it was the Beach Boys that pushed the Beatles. I know people love the Beach Boys. I know people go batshit over pet sounds. I just don't get that why that was the band that pushed them or why people kept buying songs about surfers that were all the same goddamn song. And yet the Beatles kept evolving and changing styles and sounds, but people keep them on the same level. Uh, you know, I'm from Boston. Well, I'm from Worcester, but, you know, being a Red Sox fan, you want to say Red Sox-Yankees is a rivalry, but when you look at the tail of the tape, it's not even close. Uh, that's it. I'm done rambling. Uh, in a minute, we're going to let you guys get into the episode. Uh, thank you for indulging me and indulging this new format. Uh, yeah, we'll be back to have some drinks and talk about some stuff. Mike fix. So, all right, here we are. And again, uh, unedited, unfiltered, unscripted, completely unprepared. All of this whole podcast going forward is completely off the cuff. There's really no prep other than like in my mind, I have a direction to go in and, and what's on my mind. Uh, but beyond that, I promise you guys, there's no research. There's no prep. This is just me. As real and as raw as you're going to ever get. Um, 
so this week was my birthday. And, you know, by the time this episode comes out, uh, it will come out on Friday. My birthday will have been on Thursday, the day before. And I will have turned 50. Like, it, it's weird. And, you know, as I'm recording this, this is actually the day before my birthday that I'm, I'm recording this portion of the podcast. Um, you know, and I've been getting a lot of like, how does it feel? You're turning 50. And it's such a weird thing to to ask. Like, I don't know, like for for somebody like me uh, and, and those of you guys who know me, like I, I get up, I go to work, I do my job. It's what I do, you know, and, you know, along the way, try to connect with people and, you know. There's a part of the the business that I enjoy on a personal level, which is, you know, getting to taste and try and connect. And then there's a part of the business that's strictly a a cold, calculated business thing. And that's what I'm going to do every day. And and when I get up and, you know, it's my birthday, you know, are you going to take the day off? No, I'm not going to take the day off. I'm going to go to work because it's what I'm going to do. And it's probably going to be weird and awkward because people know it's my birthday and they want to celebrate it. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I I love all you guys who, by the time this comes out, have wished me happy birthday um, because I know it's it's coming. You know, and, you know, again, you get asked that question, like, how do you feel? Like, I don't really feel any different. You know, I'm again, it's just another day. It's just a continuation uh, of life. But what it has done is it's put me into a reflective kind of mood in in what I think is is a very sort of interesting perspective and reflective mood. And before I, you know, get into it, this is the spirits guide. So I don't want you guys to think like, oh, this is shaping up to be a weird kind of fucking downer thing. No, it's it's not. It's gonna be fun. Um and because it's a spirits guide, we're drinking spirits or, well, I'm drinking spirits. And what I'm drinking, you know, sort of in celebration of my birthday. And this is one of those samples that, you know, during COVID when we were really exchanging samples back and forth, you know, I would get them, you know, a couple times a week and I'd bring them home and, and put them in the cabinet inside my bar. And, you know, there's one or two like. You know, like we all have, and I've talked about it before, you know, like you have your shelves where you put your bottles and then you buy, you know, it used to be one facing and now like your bottles are too deep and sometimes they're three deep and you sometimes forget about the bottle that's all the way in the back. And then one day you're like, oh, I forgot I had that. This is a sample that I came across recently and I was like, what am I going to do with that? This is really something special. And, you know, this week on the the Wachusett Wine and Spirits podcast, I talked about Old Forester in sort of preparation for me getting to do a store pick in another couple of weeks. So, you know, it's fitting, you know, as we go into Fourth of July weekend and, you know, America and America's holiday to be drinking, you know, one of the oldest, the oldest continuously family owned bourbon in America. And that is Old Forester. And this is a sample that I was given. And it's crazy because I know 
who gave me the sample based on the handwriting because you guys are awesome. And there's so many of you that bring me these samples uh, and you've brought me so many of them that I can actually tell by the handwriting who brought this to me. Uh, and this is my friend Jason uh, from the Horseshoe Barrel Society who hopefully will be helping me do the old Forester store pick. And this is actually from 2020. This is the old Forester fittingly birthday bourbon. Uh, you know, all I've got for facts is that it's 98 proof and it's a 10 year bourbon. Uh, I know that the old Forester Mashville is 72% corn, 18% rye, 10% malted barley, and that they use a level four char. None of that really means as much as the fact that somebody out there who at one point was not a part of my universe, who is now a part of my universe, got their hands on something that they thought was special and felt that I deserved to, to have a taste of that. And it's humbling, uh, but it, and it's something that I appreciate so much because really, you know, as I get into sort of my perspective on, you know, where where my head is at right now, like this really is all that matters. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Jay. And as I go on this journey and ramble and rant, uh, this is what I'm going to be drinking. I suppose, to be fair, I should probably taste it first before I go on my my ramble. Oh, man. On the nose. This is that signature Old Forester cherry bomb, cherries from heaven. You know, and I'm drinking this out of, you know, if you guys watch the Watch You Some Wine and Spirits podcast, these are the glasses that we tend to use when we're doing whiskey tastings. They're like a hybrid of a snifter and a Glencairn glass. So they're really wide at the base. They kind of come up like a flute, like a Glencairn, but the mouth is wider, like a rocks glass almost. You know, so at 90 proof, I'm not really, uh, 98 proof, I'm not really afraid to get my nose in there. Although, and, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but, you know, the real way you're supposed to nose whiskey is, yeah, you can get your nose in there, but you want your mouth to be below the rim of the glass. So the bottom sort of lip of the glass is up over the top lip of your mouth, and you get your nose in there, and then what you do is you breathe in through your mouth, and that will help you pick up the aromas through the nose. But, yeah, I mean, just that sour cherry, um, toasted oak, like almost a little smoky. And, again, some of that is that number four char. So there really is a big oak influence. That is just, man, that is beautiful, stylish, elegant, perfectly balanced. Um, you know, I've talked about Jackie's Zycan on, on, you know, the beginning of this podcast. Talked about her a little bit on the Wachusett Wine and Spirits podcast earlier this week. Um, 
This is one of the ones that I know she had her hand in because I know her palate from listening to her on podcast. Uh, she tended to lean towards lower proof. Um, I feel like there was almost some conflict with her in the master distiller uh, because he leaned towards higher proof. And, you know, when you listen to her in interviews, talk about like the barrel proof option for the single barrels. It was almost like she was being more polite, you know, like, oh, you can proof it down to the proof you want. But, you know, from listening to her talk, her palate was not on the high proof bourbon, which I really appreciate and like. And I've said it a whole bunch of times, you know, on Sunday afternoon when it's 110 degrees out, you don't want to be out there drinking 115, 120 proof bourbon because you're going to have a headache. You're going to be mushy by sundown. Uh, and yeah, things just kind of get ugly. So this to me, you know, is it good? Absolutely. Is it worth the money? Without a doubt, it's worth the money. And this is one that I don't really see flipped online a lot. Um, I mean, there is a secondary market, but it's not as obnoxious and pretentious as the Buffalo Trace stuff or even the Michter stuff is is going for now, let alone some of the the elitist brands uh, that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, so, yeah, is it worth the money? Absolutely. Does the bottle starter conversation? It's one of the cooler, most you know, more unique bottles of bourbon as far as bottle design goes. Yeah, it's it's a winner on all three. Uh, is it a taster, a sipper, or a drinker? Uh, it's definitely one that I'm glad I get to taste. Thank you, Jay, very much. Uh, it's definitely a sipper, mostly because of the price point. Uh, it, it, it's one of those whiskeys, and, and so many of you guys out there that I've become friendly with, and you know, and we we chat about whiskey. We, you know, we talk about like, I'm so afraid to kill this bottle because I can't replace it. Um, it. It's one of those, that's what keeps it from being a drinker because you'll never be able to replace this, uh, you know, to go now and try to find a 2020 birthday bourbon is going to cost you a pretty significant amount. What I love about the, I don't believe I'm going to say this, but the Spirits Guide, Spirits Guide Army or Spirits Guide Nation. God, those are such fucking cliche terms. But, you know, the people who are on this journey with me and in, in, in our family here, you know, I talk to a lot of customers who are like, I don't want to open this bottle until I get a replacement bottle and then I'll open the first bottle. I feel like all of us who are on this journey together in this sort of spirit community uh, that we've got going here, we all open that bottle. We're not sitting there looking at it, waiting to open it. We open that bottle and it's not until we get halfway through where we start to get the oh shits of like, oh, this is really good. Now I need to find another one to replace this. As opposed to the guys who like, you know, want to find one not to open so they can find one to drink. You know, this stuff is you know, made and bottled and designed to be drank and shared with friends. So, again, I, I love that about you guys that, you know, that we're all actually drinking the stuff and we don't need the backup bottle till we get halfway through the bottle we've got. Uh, and even then, we want that backup bottle so we can drink more of it, uh, not, you know, keep it as a, as a museum piece. So, he said... Being 50 has, has put me in this sort of reflective mood because really I have been in this business now for 35 years. 
uh, I got like that's a long time. And I, I have friends who weren't even born when I started in this business. And yeah, if you're doing the math, that means I was 15 when I started my journey in this business. But I started as a 15 year old fry cook in my family's fish and chip restaurant. And that led me to, you know, cooking jobs, which led me to server jobs, which led me to bartending jobs, which led me to retail jobs, which led me back to the bartending and management world, and eventually have led me back here to where I'm managing a retail store. And I get the coolest job in the world of I get to taste everything that comes through that store. I get to say yay or nay to a lot of things. And, you know, yeah, I, I, I get to connect with people through these products. But I have seen so much, you know, sort of come and go. And I just kind of want to reflect on it, uh, you know, in the bartending world. I mean, this is probably the easiest sort of blanket coverage to reflect on. But, you know, when I started bartending, it was at the end of what we now as bartenders refer to as the sugar bomb cocktails. You know, everything was cocktails when I started bartending. When I when I first started bartending, there was a hundred recipes you had to know off the top of your head. And they were, you know, Alabama Slammer, B-52, After Five, Scarlet O'Hara. And I know I have some friends, you know, <laughs> it's funny, turning 50, like my friends who are younger than me are like, I can't fucking believe you're 50 years old. And my friends who are older than me are like, yeah, you're still a baby. It's, it's a weird kind of age. And I feel like that's just always been me. I've always sort of, you know, made friends who are really younger than me or really older than me. And yet I don't know anybody <laughs> my own age. So there's, there's, there's some of you out there who are like, what the hell is he talking about B-52? And then there's some of you out there who are like, yeah, I remember being at Shaboom's getting ripped up on B-52s. You know, kamikaze shots, woo-woo shots, sex in the beach, uh, fuzzy navels, which is the drink that single-handedly saved DeKuyper as a company. Um, you know, slow gin fizz, Pearl Harbor, melon ball, uh, grape crush, you know, let alone your, your margaritas and your mudslides and your Long Island iced teas. All these cocktails that we had to make that were, you know, base liquors and juices and things that I didn't realize at the time that, you know, like I was raised on sour mix. I didn't realize that sour mix wasn't really a thing until probably the eighties that before that you were using lemon juice and egg whites and, and sugar. Um, so that's what I was raised on. And then I was bartending as a lot of that stuff started to fade away and everything just became single liquor highball drinks, you know, you, you made a few white Russians and a few Cape Codders, but everything became Jack and Coke, Captain and Coke, vodka soda, gin and tonic, tanker and tonic, you know, brand name, um, single liquor drinks. And for a while, I actually taught bartending school and I would teach people like, you don't really need to worry about recipes so much because people will tell you exactly what they want. They're going to tell you because, you know, the the art of cocktails was kind of lost uh, for better or for worse for a whole bunch of reasons. And people were just ordering, you know, Jack and Coke, CC and Ginger, 7 and 7, VO and Ginger. And it was a lot of single liquor highball drinks, maybe two liquor highball drinks. 
And then all of a sudden, this craft renaissance came around, and we were making paper planes and brown derbies and Negronis and old fashions and last words and aviations. And like I've seen three sort of sort of time periods of cocktails. It's amazing that that's all happened in my lifetime to go from Pearl Harbors and melon balls to vodka soda all the way back to Negronis and actually making old fashions. My God, I remember making old fashions as a young bartender and nobody ever training me how to make old fashions. You were just throwing all kinds of stuff in a glass and mixing it up. And really that cocktail, you know, as a lot of you guys know, had been sort of bastardized and, you know, people were adding Sprite to it and sour mix and throwing all kinds of fruit into it. Uh, we're definitely in a better place now that the actual old fashioned has come back. Um, it, it, it's just been a, a weird sort of evolution and, and transition uh, from, you know, those early days. And even with a lot of the spirits that we saw on the bar back then, you know, things like Midori, uh, Chambord, Grand Marnier, B&B was a big thing when I started bartending. Got green creme de mint and apricot brandy and, and banana brandy and creme de strawberry. And all these things were big when I started. And you, you basically had, you know, Tanqueray and Beefeater, maybe Bombay. And those were the, th the only three gins that existed. Uh, we had Jose Cuervo. That was the tequila that existed. That was it. Everything was, uh, you know, well tequila or Cuervo. And it was a gold margarita or a grand gold margarita. And, and that was the only options. There was no Patron. Uh, Herradura existed, but nobody bought it. It was too expensive. Um, yeah, it was just there was so few options. And, and we I've gotten to see those things change from a, a bar perspective. And, you know, in turn, like it, it's been interesting to watch the, the sort of buying habits uh, of those things where, you know, like I said, the first time I worked in liquor retail it was probably 15 years ago. And it was again, it was all Tanqueray, Beefeater, Bombay Sapphire was your stylish gin, Jose Cuervo and then Patron was your high end tequila. You know, every bar I worked at had a clear rum which was your Bacardi a spiced rum which was your Captain Morgan and a coconut rum which was your Malibu all that's gone uh, I mean those those brands are still staples but people are drinking better rums and we have more options uh, to kind of choose from there I'm going to save probably bourbon and whiskey just for the back half of this podcast because how that has changed has been absolutely ridiculous um yeah it, it, that that's been a fascinating transformation that is just again a block of time all to itself mm. oh man that birthday bourbon gets better with every single sip so it really has been a wild evolution um, and I, I said, like, I feel like 
I've been fortunate to really kind of live through the best of times of, you know, but I, also like the craziest, fastest changing times in the history of everything. When you think of when I was a kid, you know, TV was black and white. I remember getting my first color TV. Like I'm not fucking ancient, but I still remember having a black and white TV. I remember getting up and turning the dial on the TV. I remember why they call it a clicker when you had this little box that was attached by a wire and the buttons would click when you would change the channel, you know, and then, you know, color TV, VCRs, DVD players. And now we're streaming everything, you know, on satellite. So like things changed so fast. We went from music on when I was a kid, like albums, eight tracks, cassettes, CDs, to now music is just sort of this abstract concept of air. You know, it's just all streaming services and Spotify. We're not talking 100 years of history. We're talking 30 years. Like things have happened so fast. Um, and, you know, that also happened in, in spirits. Uh, beer. You know, we've watched the evolution of beer in the last 30 years. You know, you know we look at, if you walk into to Wachusett Wine and Spirits or any store right now, and you see all the craft beer and you're mind boggled, but really put it into perspective of, you know, 30 years ago, you had Bud, you had Bud Light. You know, we maybe had Narragansett, a few sort of, Fringe, Schaefer, uh, Schlitz, Carling's Black Label, Strohs, uh, Heineken and Amstel were considered to be exotic. In fact, when I was bartending, we had two classifications of beer, domestic and import. That was it. Domestic was one price, import was the other. And I remember when Sam Adams got released and started to be in the market, People were confused because we had to price Sam Adams as a import beer because it was more expensive than Budweiser and Miller Lite. Coors was barely a thing in this market. You know, things we take for you know granted, and and I guess a lot of this is just perspective. You know, when you walk in and you see Coors and Miller and Bud uh, and Yingling, like. Yingling until 10, 12 years ago, that was like liquid gold. We used to have to mule that up here from from Pennsylvania and cores. You know, if you could get that east of the Mississippi, like that was a big, big deal. Now we sort of take it for granted that that stuff is here. And then, you know, we get to watch sort of the craft beer explosion when things like Anchor Steam hit the market. And, you know, we're like, whoa, there's a brewery that's not. Budweiser or Heineken or Amstel. There's a little tiny brewery that's making beer. And that was cool. Um, and there was a bunch of these little breweries. I remember when Blue Moon was just it was kind of a craft brewery in in, in Colorado before it became a, a Miller, Coors, Molson, whoever the parent company that owns that now. I feel like that keeps sort of revolving. Uh, you know, and then we started to see things like Allagash, Amagong, Rogue, Sierra Nevada, you know, all these sort of craft beers that were making beer, you know, they were just, they were making styles and they were styles that people drank, you know, 
I, I watch people go from just drinking, uh, you know, what my friend the BSO calls shitty continental lagers. You know, your Budweiser, your Bud Light, your Miller, your your Miller High Life, your Miller Light, your Coors, your Coors Banquet, Coors Light, whatever. You know, all those things, just sort of generic lagers you know, that are all well made and, and no knock against them. But then we started discovering like, oh, beer can taste different. And we were drinking porters. We started drinking stouts. We started drinking flavored stouts. You know, Southern Tier became a, a big deal. Uh, you know, so many breweries that just stone became a big deal. And then Dogfish Head in, in people were making IPAs in the way that IPAs were intended to be made, which were hoppy and bitter. And we were drinking Saison's and people weren't the the parallel that i draw between like beer and music and i'll even talk about it you know when i get into whiskey in the back half of this podcast i'm like for people like my age and older who remember like the radio when it wasn't serious when it wasn't like hey this is the prince channel on sirius or you know this is the hip hop station or the blue station there used to be a time when you turned on the radio and you could hear, you know, Martha Reeves and the Vandells and then the Rolling Stones and then Black Sabbath and then Led Zeppelin and then Gordon Lightfoot. Like it was just music and nobody really thought of it as like genres. You know, that was something that corporations and people well above our pay grade decided that we need to break this stuff down into categories and file it in 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 neat tidy organizational ways so we can define it but for those of us who grew up listening to music it was just music we liked music and you know you might like a donner summer song and then you might listen to jay giles and you, you just liked it because it was good and you didn't care like oh this is disco this is rock this is blues it just was music and i feel like that's the way it was with beer of you know we were just drinking beer like all right, this is a porter. Like we didn't really sort of compute like, all right, well, this is different than an IPA or a Saison. We just, all right, we're drinking beer and, and you know, this one's called a porter and this one's called a stout and this one's called a Saison or an ESB or an IPA. We just liked beer and we were willing to go on the journey. And we went from the, the evolution of Bud Bud Light to drinking all these sort of German styles. And by the way, Germany is really where, you know, the epicenter of beer is much like Scotch is for whiskey. German beers and Belgian beers is where, you know, the center of the beer universe is. And we, you know, we grew into these breweries of, you know, Allagash White Ale and Amagong and all their Belgian styles, you know, and then Boulevard. And, you know, there were so many great beers. And then it sort of just kind of shrank back into IPAs. And then everybody wanted New England IPAs. And why? And to me, they're they're about as pretentious as elitist bourbons at this point. They don't taste like IPAs because they've taken all the bitterness out of the hops, which was the original purpose of them. Uh, so I, I bite my tongue on a retail sense of like, I like IPAs. No, you really don't. You don't want the IPAs to taste the way that they're supposed to taste. You like them hazy and juicy. Um and that comes from like the wheat is what makes it hazy. And then they go like, I don't like wheat beers. What do you think makes it hazy? Um, 
you know, and, you know, they're not pasteurized. There's a ton of carbs and calories and sugar in them. So they go down really easy. They're super high in alcohol. But again, you can't really drink those on a hot summer day. A whole bunch of 12% hazy, juicy IPAs jacked up with sugar and carbs. You're going to have a terrible hangover and you're going to get really fat really soon. But that's kind of the evolution. We went from Bud and Bud Light to all these sort of craft breweries doing German and Belgian styles. And now it's just all about what's new, what's fresh, what's hazy, what's juicy, what's easy to drink. Um, and what does everybody else think it's great? You know, it's become a sort of status, uh, kind of elite thing where everybody's checking their untapped app to see what it got for a rating before they even, you know, have the, the courage to, to try something different. All right, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to finish up my birthday bourbon and then come back and simply just talk about the evolution of whiskey over the last 30 years. All right, take a break. Be right back. All right, so I'm back. Uh, I'm going to apologize in advance because, you know, it's my birthday. It's my party, and I'll drink if I want to. Uh, yeah, clearly I'm getting a little off the rails. Um, I've been sort of pre-celebrating for my birthday again. At the time I'm recording this, uh, my birthday is actually in. Consult my phone in an hour or so. Uh, <laughs> that brings up a funny story too. You know, like at midnight, theoretically, I turned fifty. Um, when I was in the bar business, I used to get that all the time of kids going out, you know, the night before they turned 21 and thinking that at midnight they were automatically 21. Uh, and if there's any bartenders out there listening, you know what I'm talking about. You've been through this where like they come in and they're 20 and then all of a sudden at midnight, they're 21 and they try to use that horseshit logic on you of like, Oh, it's midnight. I just turned 21. And you go like, well, no, it's, you know, it's still day of business when you were 20. And they go like, well, no, it's now it's the next day. And I go like, all right, what time were you born? And they would always look at me kind of cross-eyed. And go, it's probably from everybody I've ever talked to. I feel like most kids are born between like, 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. <laughs> so even though the date changed and you try to pull that, oh, I'm 21 now, hey, you want to pull that on me, let's get a little bit more specific. And you probably weren't born till 3 a.m. Bar is going to be closed by then, so you're really not even turning 21 until after we close. Come back tomorrow. Now, if you're under 21 and you're listening to this, first of all, what is wrong with you? Second of all, don't try that shit on a bartender. You're 21 the day you wake up and you're actually 21. Don't try to pull that after midnight stuff. You put people in bad positions where they have to make judgment calls that they don't want to make. Um, trust me, we want to serve you alcohol and we want to take your money and we want your tip, which is another lesson as well. If you're going to go out and turn 21, make sure you bring enough money to tip your bartender. We don't work for free and we don't even work for minimum wage. 
We work for some very insignificant amount of money. We pay taxes on our sales, whether you tip us or not. Um, but if you're going out and you're turning 21, take care of the people who take care of you and let that be a lesson in life. Um, take care of the people who take care of you, whether it's your bartender, uh, your sales reps, your friends, your loved ones, whatever. Take care of the people who take care of you. Um, I can't stress that enough. All right. So we are back for the back half segment of my sort of birthday recollection, uh, reminiscing, rambling, whatever. I have switched whiskeys, and this is probably going to be you know, when I do my whiskey of the year list at the end of the year and my top 10, my top 20, I usually do a couple different versions. I do one for the Wachisa Wine and Spirits uh, page and podcast, which is pretty much whiskeys that were available at the store. It's not really fair to, you know, put out a top 10 list to my customers of things that they probably can't buy from me. My top 10 whiskeys here at the Spirits Guide will involve whiskeys that you know, I can get anywhere and it gives me a little bit more freedom to include whiskeys on that list. And I guess maybe this one can make that list. And I don't know that anything is going to knock this off its pedestal for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly emotional. But my whiskey of the year at this point for the Spirits Guide, my personal whiskey of the year for many reasons is this one. It is the Highland Park 15 year. Viking Heart. I posted this on Instagram recently. Um, I get personal here, but there's certain things that I I don't want to get too personal about here because you know I want to protect my life. But this was a bottle that was given to me as a gift from the single most important human being in my world, the person that I love the most. Um, it was one of those sort of mind blowing. I can't believe you did that for me. Um, and if you're out there listening, you know who you are. Um, and I'm just not going to say the name, but yeah, 15 year Highland park bottle is gorgeous. It's a ceramic bottle. It's, you know, go back on my Instagram page. You'll see the pictures of it. Oh man. And it, I guess it's fitting. It really, I promise you guys, this is all off the cuff. Uh, I have nothing written down for notes as, as far as where I want to go with this. This is literally just just spewing out of my mouth as we go. But really, this becomes fitting because it's scotch. And that's really, it's where my whiskey journey kickstarted. But I want to go back even before that. Uh, and like I talked about with music and with beer, when I started drinking whiskey, you know, I didn't care that it was scotch or bourbon or rye or an American whiskey or Irish. It was just whiskey, you know, and and we drank it because we liked it. We were open to all the different styles. Like we didn't think of it as like, I don't like Irish whiskey or I don't like Canadian whiskey or, you know, I don't like rye or I don't like bourbon or I, I just I like whiskey, you know, and that's how I started. And maybe that's why to this day. I'm still open and I still love whiskey. 
Uskabatha, Uskabetha, the water of life. I still like it all because I didn't start up being pigeonholed by, you know, definitions and being put in a box of like, bourbon's hot. You've got to drink bourbon. Don't drink rye. Don't drink Irish. Don't drink scotch. Don't adjust your palate. You know, let the, the product come down to your length. For me, I had to learn to drink scotch. I had to learn to drink bourbon. I had to learn to appreciate these things and figure it out. And I think that's why I love them so much now. But sort of the evolution of whiskey in my life uh, and how it sort of coincides with the evolution of whiskey that I've seen in the last 30 years. You know, when I started drinking whiskey, it was okay to mix it. You know, when I started drinking whiskey, it was Jack and Coke, uh, Jim Beam and Coke, just whiskey and Coke. It was, you know, seven and seven. There's some of you out there who are like, really? People drank Seagram seven. People drank a fucking ton of Seagram seven. As a bartender, Seagram seven was in what we called the speed rack. Why do we call it the speed rack? Because the bottles you use the most you keep the closest to you to make those drinks faster. So you don't have to run bars are really set up or they're supposed to be set up to make life easier on the bartender. So we can get these drinks out fast. Every speed rack I worked in, in my first 10, 15 years of bartending had a bottle of Canadian club, Canadian mist Seagram seven and Seagram's VO in the speed rack. That's how much we sold. You know, this is not, people go like, oh, that's not good whiskey. It's the same whiskey as it was 25 years ago. I mean, palates have changed and we've gotten away from that, but it's the same exact whiskey. We were selling a ton of it. I don't know how many 7 and 7s, VO and Ginger, CC and Ginger, uh, you know, Canadian Club and, and Sprite, CC and Sprite. I don't know how many of those I made in my first 10 years of bartending. It's it's astronomical. And that's what we were drinking for whiskey. We went from mixing whiskey to sipping whiskey to whiskey being this pretentious, elitist sort of product. And I talked about that on, you know, the earlier podcast about my the state of bourbon. But really what my personal journey was, was starting out drinking Jack and Cokes. You know, it tasted like whiskey, but the sweetness of the Coke, the flavor of the cola really sort of tempered the the harshness of the whiskey when I was younger. And it got me into whiskey. And, but that was the way everybody drank it. Uh, and I remember my best friend at the time, uh, his name was Joey, uh, somebody who was responsible for getting me into theater, into music, uh, was a big part of my my sort of drinking journey as well. And someday I, I'll do a whole episode, hopefully even with him, uh, about you know the the way we used to drink and the things we used to drink back then. Um, I remember he went away to California, and he was my best friend. I was devastated. You know, I was twenty one, and we were the kind of friends who like just woke up in the morning and like, all right, what are we doing today? There was no question of, you know, are we hanging out? It was, what are we doing while we're hanging out? We were that close. 
And then he went through some stuff and, and went to California for a while. And I didn't see him for a long time. And I would send him care packages of, you know, booze that you couldn't get in California and, and other things. And then it was, so this is a, a personal story that I'll, I'll share, but you know, he had called me up and said, Hey, you know, I'm coming home in a couple of weeks, you know, it'd be good to see you again. You know, I was like, cool. You know, like, Hey, I'm all excited. My best friend is coming back home from California. And then one day I came home and he's sitting at my kitchen table. Completely surprised me. He had a bottle of, and I remember it to this day. And I don't know if he even remembers it, but it was a bottle of rebel yell, which has now been changed to just rebel. But I remember we sat at my kitchen table and I had to be 22. And I remember just, we poured glasses because really you either drank whiskey in a mixed drink with Coke or Sprite or ginger ale, or you did shots of it. Those were the only two ways that people consumed whiskey when I turned 21. Is It was either shots or in a mixed drink. And I remember we sat down and we poured two sort of kind of heavier shots. But we didn't shoot the whole thing. We were having a conversation. So instead of shooting the whole glass, I just kind of sipped it. And he sipped it. And then, you know, we ended up finishing the bottle that way. And that was the first time I ever really sat and sipped whiskey. You know, and I like I don't know that I even had a concept of like, oh, this is bourbon or this is a weeded bourbon. Like none of that stuff mattered. Um, It was just whiskey and it was good. And I was sharing it with my best friend. From there sort of the journey takes me to drinking scotch and we drank a lot of scotch and really sort of the evolution of of whiskey kind of plays out like this you know in this country bourbon was big prohibition happened bourbon comes back and then there's a new generation that doesn't want to drink what their parents drank and american palates went towards lighter spirits you know and for a whole bunch of reasons, like bourbon just wasn't good coming out of prohibition because people were rushing into the market. And so people started to switch to vodka and gin and lighter spirits. Things like Captain Morgan's and Bacardi uh, became huge. And so by the time, you know, I started drinking when I was 21, 30 years ago, bourbon was garbage, Uh, not in quality, but in sort of market recognition and popularity. Nobody cared about bourbon. Definitely not in the way that the sort of elite pretentiousness of bourbon is now. People were drinking scotch, you know, and in Scotland, kind of the story there was there was a lot of scotch, but because of prohibition, it wasn't getting imported to the U.S., at least not at the rate that they needed to. And then, you know, they started to have a backlog and then somebody started to go like, well, we've got all this old scotch. How do we get rid of it? Let's market it as a premium product that it's older and it's better. And that's where the idea of like a 12-year-old single malt and a 15-year-old single malt and an 18-year-old single malt came from was they just had it and they couldn't get rid of it. And they were trying to figure out how to market it. Now, they were bottling it all at 80 proof because if you bottled it any higher, the tax rate was so exorbitant that you couldn't afford to even export it anyways. So that's why scotch is a lower proof. But it really is sort of the the godfather of all whiskeys. It's stylish. It's elegant. It's tasty. 
And for a long time, it was affordable. And that was the whiskey that dominated the market. So when I started drinking whiskey and really getting into it, uh, especially with my best friend Murph, we were drinking scotch. And we were buying, you know, 12-year-old scotches. We were splurging at 45 bucks. I remember splurging for Balvini Portwood 21 year or 20 year, I forget which, um, which is one of the greatest bottles I've ever drank. And maybe it's the moment in time that I drank it. But I remember we were like, oh, I think one of us had hit like a, a Super Bowl pool and we had a little bit of extra money and we splurged at 125 bucks for it now, for, for it then. Now that bottle is like 275 bucks. If you can even get it, you know, we were buying Dalmore cigar malt for 35 bucks and then that vanished from the marketplace and then it came back and it was $200. So, you know, scotch was what we were drinking. Nobody was drinking American whiskey. Nobody cared. God, I remember liking Jim Beam rye because it was like 15 bucks on the shelf. And I just thought like, this is really good. And I didn't really have a concept of what rye was or mash bills or anything like that i was just buying whiskey and i was like well that's inexpensive and then i bought it and i was like wow that's really good i like that and i didn't care about the distinction of well this is rye and balvini is a scotch nobody cared it was just whiskey we bought it we drank it because it was good and we were drinking it with our friends um so that's sort of the evolution that i witnessed of my evolution is kind of the whiskey evolution of we were drinking scotch. And then all of a sudden, you know, people started asking me 10 years ago, like, you know, why are the price of scotch going up? Well, they were marketing all that 12-year-old scotch 30 years ago, and then we drank it up as Americans. We just consumed all of it, and now there's no 12-year left anymore because we drank all the reserves. We did exactly what they wanted us to do with their marketing, and now it became a supply and demand issue of, well, we don't have all this excess of 12-year scotch. We've got to raise the price because we have less stock of it. And so we started to see the price of scotch creep up and creep up. And I'm convinced, this is my own personal opinion, that people switch back to bourbon because at that point, it was cheaper. And again, I don't know that any of us really cared. I, I mean, I'm sure that there was a lot of people, but in general, the masses, like we just drank whiskey and, you know, scotch, you know, Glenlivet 12 year went from 35 to $45. And then you could get, you know, Maker's Mark, Evan Williams for like 20 bucks. Uh, well, maybe not Maker's Mark. They were promoting themselves as being more expensive. But, you know, Jim Beam, Wild Turkey, you could get those brands for a whole lot cheaper. And so we started buying up bourbon. And then, you know, because bourbon industry was shit back then, there was a whole bunch of old barrels of bourbon that was just collecting dust and dying off in warehouses. And people were like, all right, well, you know, we'll buy this old stuff from the old Stitza Weller and we'll bottle it under Black Maple Hills, whatever. And, you know, you could charge 50, 60 bucks. You know, you were making premium whiskeys that were $60. And, you know, and then like, Albert Blanton starts to come out with some single barrel stuff and, uh, you know, Booker no starts coming out with some specialty small batch stuff and, and, and starting to premium eyes, the bourbon industry. So we went from, you know, whiskey being a mixer 
to drinking the stylish, elegant scotch until we drank them out of stock and caused that price increase. And then we started drinking bourbon because it was cheaper. And, you know, we would anybody you talk to who still drinks bourbon will, you know, remember that, you know, five years ago, you could find Weller on the shelf for 20 bucks. Nobody cared. You could find Blanton's on the shelf for 35, 40 bucks. Nobody cared. It was there. And now that we've bought it all up and that somebody on a corporate level went, hey, light went on and said, we can make fucking money at this. We don't have to put it all in the market. People have realized we make a quality product. Let's roll it back, create a higher demand, limit the supply. And it went from like this thing that, you know, we were mixing with Coke and Sprite to scotch which was really good and affordable for the price and then we switched to bourbon because it was a a drink that we were price shopping we were buying weller because it was 20 bucks you know we were buying evan williams because it was 12 bucks and kudos to evan williams that you know they've never gone exorbitant on their prices or limited their availability but we were buying bourbon because it was a cheaper alternative and then somehow i've witnessed this thing where it's turned into brands like chicken cock. Like you've been around for two years. You have a $60 baseline model, you know, old elk. You've been around for a couple of years. Like I get Greg Metz. You're amazing. You make some of the best whiskeys in America that's ever been made, but you created a brand and instantly out of the gate you're you know, 50, 60 bucks. Uh, Jim Rutledge. I get it. Nothing but respect for Jim Rutledge. You you single-handedly saved Four Roses as a distillery and a brand. You got them back making bourbon. But Cream of Kentucky, 130 bucks right out of the gate? Come on. Um, let alone your Kentucky Owl. Let alone all the, the Marianne Eves products, you know, Sweeten's Cove. Like things that are made intentionally on a limited basis from sourced barrels that are intentionally higher priced, you know, full disclosure, like I'm in the business and I'm going to share these things with you guys. You know, I met with the, the rep from chicken cock today, which first of all is a fucking terrible name, but you know, in an honest moment between them, he's, well, yeah, you know, they want to be at 59 99. That doesn't say to me like, Hey, this is what the cost of goods are. This is what it costs us for the bottle. This is what it costs us to make the the whiskey. This is what it costs us to pay a sales force and the master distiller. So this is what we need to sell it at to make money. No, we want to be out at $60 a bottle because we want to be perceived as a premium product. That to me is elitist. That is catering to all the bandwagon people who are getting on this sort of bourbon world because it's the cool trendy thing and this goes back to my whole fear of like the the future of bourbon it frightens me because it is seriously just becoming something for people with money and status and it's not about heritage or passion or anything like that you know i i mentioned it a little bit in the opening of this podcast of you know, celebrities getting into the whiskey game and then charging a ton of money for their baseline models. Here's my advice to you guys. Hey, Bob Dylan. Hey, Andy Roddick and Peyton Manning. Hey, Terry Bradshaw. Hey, uh, Florida Georgia Line. 
Luke Bryan, whoever the hell else is out there starting a whiskey, come out with something that's 90 proof, 35 bucks good from a distillery that you own and you're aging the stuff yourself. Because if you're just buying MGP product and then selling it for 60 bucks, Christ, I can buy redemption for less than that. And it tastes pretty much the same. And if you're putting out another 95, five MGP rye under your newly created label that has some fake backstory. Yeah. I don't need it anymore. Whiskey is not meant for the elitist. And I, I suppose whenever working class people, I don't want to say poor people because it, makes us sound terrible but like working class people people who just get up like myself and so many of you guys out there who get up go to work make your money you know you're not making it on the stock market you're not you know making cash on cash or bitcoin or you know whatever horseshit people who are going out and working construction jobs and making an honest living that's who whiskey was for it was made by farmers for other farmers. And anytime there's something good that, and this is, I guess, one of the few times I'm going to get sort of uh, a sociology sort of thing in there, but anytime that people at the bottom, the poor people, the people who are the working class, you know, the people who bleed and sweat and get dirty, find something that they like and that makes them happy, Somebody in a higher position goes, wait a minute, what's that shit? I need to have some of that. And then there's a better version of it for them that's more accessible to them than those of us who, you know, work and sweat and bleed and get dirty. And we're just buying, you know, our Wild Turkey 101 and our Evan Williams Bottled in Bond and our Jim Beam Black Label. The people who built this whiskey you know, suddenly we don't have access to, you know, the 300 bottles of Kentucky Owl or Old Carter small batch. I get some of them are absolutely fantastic. And and thanks to you guys, I've gotten to taste a few of them, but that's not really what it's all about. And I guess that's the evolution that I've seen is it went from something that we used to mix with Coke. And I guess I got to throw that jab out there. I'm going to take one more sip of this, by the way. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. I don't think I, I talked about this. If you guys get a chance to try this, this is all like tropical fruit, pineapple, smoke, no peat smoke, just toasty oak smoke, like pineapple, honey, chamomile, uh, clover, very floral, very fruity, a uh, little bit higher proof point. Uh, let me consult my bottle here. 88 proof, which is a little bit higher than standard scotch. But even that, it's less than 90 proof, so you can drink a lot of this. Um, if you guys see this out in the wild and you're a scotch drinker, and I know some of you guys are, grab this bottle because it is absolutely delicious. Oh, man, so good. I apologize for not giving a quick review on that uh, when I taste it. Man, so, so good. And it really does bring me back to my roots of just drinking whiskey because it tasted good, not because it was a status. And I guess that's the evolution that I've seen is we drank. We used to drink whiskey because for those of us who were working class, 
It was the spirit we could afford. It had more flavor than vodka or gin, more body than that. And and you could mix it with, with Coke or, or Sprite or lemonade or whatever. And there was nothing wrong with that. Nobody ever looked at you and went, really? You're mixing your Jack Daniels with Coke? It was just how we drank whiskey. And then, yeah, some of us stripped away this the, the Coke or the Sprite or the ginger ale and started drinking it straight. But I never, ever look down upon anybody who's mixing their whiskey uh, with Coke. However you want to enjoy it, it's your whiskey. And if you're enjoying it with friends, that's what matters, not what you're mixing with it, not what you're doing with it. Um, so we've seen the evolution of whiskey mixed with Coke to the style of scotch and the affordability of scotch. And then that price went up. And then it was the affordability of bourbon. And uh, yeah, we got caught up in the whole sort of patriotic, this is America's spirit. Uh, and I've talked about that ad nauseum about, you know, it doesn't even exist until 1964. And single malt whiskey is actually the whiskey that we were making when we came to this country. Laird's Applejack was around before bourbon was around. Uh, rum was more prevalent than whiskey at one point in this country. So all of that stuff. But yeah, so whiskey for mixing, scotch, bourbon for the price point, And now it's evolved into this status symbol something for the elite and and that part kind of scares me and saddens me but at the same time there are people like you guys out there and i who are indulging me on my rant and my ramble and my journey but there are still some of us out there who were drinking jack and cokes with me 30 years ago who were drinking single malt scotch with me 20 years ago, who started drinking bourbon with me 10 years ago, who still drink spirits and that still get that it's just all about, it's not about status and elitism and what you pay for it. In the end, it's about who you're drinking it with and the memories that are created. So I guess in the end, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I say let the elitists have their really expensive overpriced bottles. And those of us who care more about humanity and human connections and friendships and memories and moments, we'll drink things like Old Forester 100, Jim Beam Black, Evan Williams Bottled in Bond, Wild Turkey 101, and things like that, Four Roses Small Batch. And make it more about the people that we're drinking with uh, than the product we're drinking. <sighs> Thank you guys so much for indulging me on that rant. Uh, yeah, I'll be right back to wrap this all up. All right. Like I said, thank you guys so much for indulging me and in, in listening to my ramblings and my, my sort of birthday recollections. Uh, I appreciate you guys all so, so very much. Uh, and it's just, it amazes me every week that you guys are here in the journey with me. Uh, and if you, you know, if you're enjoying this journey, as always, go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating. 
and you know, share it out on your social media. Let your friends know that there's a podcast out there for them. You know, if they're interested in the same stuff that you and I are interested in, let's bring them into the fold. Um, follow me on Instagram and Facebook as the Spirits Guide. You guys know I'm posting things that I'm drinking, listening to, um, what I'm watching, all kinds of stuff all the time. Genuine stuff that I'm actually tasting. Um, yeah, you can message me through both of those platforms. And, you know, for everything else, as always, if there's a sample you're curious as to my opinion of, uh, you know, if there's something I tasted here today, with the exception of the Highland Park 15, um, if there's ever anything I taste or bottles that I post on Instagram where you're like, hey, I love a sample of that, please email me. Again, if you're over 21 and you live close and I have extra, I love to share with people because it just bonds us and brings us closer together. And if you want to come here and geek out about movies, music, books, TV shows, whatever, and drink some cool spirits for all of that stuff, email me at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. Episode 22 in the books. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I appreciate you all. We'll uh, we'll be back next Tuesday with another three for Tuesday. No more Tuesday night tastings. <laughs> it just turned into, you know, Tuesday night flights. Uh, I've got a great lineup for next Tuesday, by the way, uh, from a customer that I met at random who came back the next day and brought me three samples of whiskeys. I have never tried. I've never seen. Uh, I can't wait to try them. I haven't touched them yet. So the reaction you're going to get next Tuesday is going to be completely honest and real. Hope you guys have a safe and happy holiday weekend. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you guys so much again. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Yay.